Welcome to the Patrick Coffin Show. This is the second episode in a series on Logos Rising, a history of ultimate reality with my guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones. This episode of the show is brought to you by CoffinNation.com. Check out CoffinNation.com in the link below. Find out what people around the world are missing. We talk about this uh, COVID-19 CCP lockdown. We talk about politics, culture, faith, movies, comedy, a little bit of sarcasm, but mostly sincere wisdom in light of the gospel and the culture war. That's CoffinNation.com. Check it out. Coming up next, Dr. E. Michael Jones, but first, this celebrity endorsement. Warning, the following podcast contains ideas and arguments that might challenge your worldview. He told Victoria her secret. He memorized pi to the highest number before infinity. And he discovered the only synonym for thesaurus. I don't usually listen to podcasts, but when I do... I always listen to the Patrick Coffin Show. Stay culturally aware, my friend. As promised, part two of a two-part series on Logos Rising, the uh, very readable, accessible tome by my guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones, editor of uh, Culture Wars magazine. Go to culturewars.com to find out more. He's also the author of Degenerate Moderns, Modernity as Rationalized Sexual Misbehavior, Libido Dominandi, uh, sexual liberation and political control, slaughter of cities, the Jewish revolutionary spirit and its impact on world history, living machines, uh, barren metal, and his latest book, as we mentioned, Logos Rising. I'll just flash it for the camera. History of Ultimate Reality. Dr. E. Michael Jones, welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be back. Uh, last week, we covered uh, the beginning of everything, and uh, you uh, took apart the arguments of people like Daniel Dennett and, and uh, the late Chris Hitchens, Sam Harris, uh, Daniel Dennett. Did I miss one? Chris Hitchens? Yeah. Richard Dawkins, that's right, the retired yeah. microbiologist. And then we talked about the origin of the concept, logos, the Greek word that's so so rich in meaning, first mentioned or popularized by uh, Heraclitus. And I thought we would go from uh, creation to the, the Logos incarnate and then take the, the narrative up uh, from there. Fair enough? Sure. This sure. is so much to cover. <laughs> this could easily yes. be a 14-part series. Um, yes. yes. Okay, maybe we can start with John 1, verse 1, uh, which compresses so much into a few words. We mentioned that as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that English word word is it's kind of uh lightweight considering the weighty nature of what saint john's laying out here and you part of your thesis here is that this is providential that the greeks had this concept of logos as intellect you know uh design order speech it's like the gospel and and the god the the incarnation itself was being prepared in some way by these uh, ideas in greek philosophy that's right. And we shouldn't hold that in contempt because the church uh, did not hold it in contempt. There are people out there who said, oh, that's to, all that Catholicism does is ba baptize some type of paganism. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that's what you're really saying there is that God the Father prepared the way for the arrival of God the Son on this earth by leaving in creation what we would call the logoi spermaticoi, uh, seminal words. Uh, and and we, we know from uh, St. Paul that uh, you can show that God exists without believing uh, in faith at all. You don't need faith at all. Reason can prove that God exists. 
but uh, the, the church fathers went farther than that. They said you could find evidence of the Trinity in creation if you looked hard enough. And there were people who, who, did, who did exactly that. Uh, and that's precisely where we start now with, with, uh, with John. Uh, I s- s- speculate here that uh, John was aware. John, the Blessed Mother, and Paul were all in Ephesus uh, around the same time. I suspect that uh, John knew about uh, Paul's failure at the Areopagus, uh, tried to introduce Jesus Christ to the Greek-speaking world, and and didn't go well. You know, for the most part, as soon as he said this man rose from the dead, they all said, well, we'll talk about that some other time. I got something important to do now. We'll see you later. And uh, he got two converts and then left uh, for Corinth, where he got a good reception with the whores and the sailors. But uh, the church didn't get started for another 500 years in in, uh, in Athens. He didn't make that connection. And I think John knew that. And I think he knew that if you're going to speak to the Greek-speaking world, there's no point in giving Hebrew genealogies because they don't know who these people are. And so he started with a way of addressing the Greeks. And they're the three sentences that you just mentioned at the beginning of the Gospel of St. John. This is addressing a, a philosophical audience an audience that, whose language was the basis for their philosophy and whose philosophy was intimately bound up with their language. And one of the crucial words was logos, which means order and, 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 and all of the stuff that we've talked about. Or mm-hmm. every word that ends in ology has, relates back to logos in one way, way or another. Uh, but this is new. That, that was kind of metaphysics, and anybody could, could understand that if they spoke Greek and were familiar with Greek history and philosophy. But he brought up something new because he started talking about the Logos as the sun. The sun and the Logos were, they were the same being. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, it's not just geometry. It's not just physics. It's a person. This, this plan is, is dynamic. And the closest we can come to that is Heraclitus' understanding of fire. Because fire is always in motion, but it's always the same. And so what you have now is the Logos is a person. Logos is God. And that means that this plan has a, a, a dimension in time. It means that there is a person who is going to bring this plan to fulfillment in human history. And suddenly you, you change everyone. You don't, you don't repudiate the past. Uh, you expand the past. You expand it to a new dimension that builds on the past of what you know, but expands mm-hmm. it way beyond anything you could ever thought of. Uh, resolving the conflict in Greek philosophy between the unmoved mover and the demiurgos, between transcendence and imminence, because now it's all located in one person, and that person is the vehicle of logos uh, in human history. Mm-hmm. And that is such a that is such a stunning new revelation that it took about 1200 years to digest it bishop so, sheen yeah so john john killed in many ways he killed philosophy if he didn't kill it saint augustine is the one who killed it because he was familiar with it and said you there's no point in trying it anymore this is something new we're gonna have to figure this out killed it in the sense of uh, put it in its on its proper footing and and framing it with its within its limitations it, it expanded it it opened up so much new territory here that we had to sort of colonize that territory before he could get back to what the original project was mm-hmm. and I think it took about 
I'm, I'm, I'm saying it took about, from the Gospel of John, it took about 1,200 years to finally get back to, now there was, Boethius was in the middle in the middle of that, and he did philosophy, but he was the, the exception that proved the rule, because everybody after that did theology. Uh, did theology. There's a very interesting conversation in around 1976 or 7 with um, then Bishop Sheen, who had been retired for 10 years, and Malcolm Muggeridge. Muggeridge was still a, a, an Anglican at that point, and they talk about Paul's failure, just to jump back a little bit to uh, to Acts 17 at the Areopagus, Paul speaking at Mars Hill, right? And it was really Paul's only evangelical failure, because he, he wasn't he didn't hit the rapprochement. He didn't really mention the cross. He didn't. He kind of uh, got to the starting gate and and left the race before the shot was fired. Uh, which is right. in a way counterintuitive. Go ahead. He was a man who was in a hurry. He was in a hurry, and I'm going to you know you're going to he buttonholes you and says I'm going to tell you I'm going to tell you some stuff. This is really important. Now you pay attention, and I've only got 15 minutes, but I'm going to. That's kind of the way. Because he had to get someplace else, he was always heading someplace else. Yeah, and uh, I think he was in too much of a hurry uh, at this point. He's like Jesus in Mark's Gospel. He's always, and then he went, and then he went, and then he went, and then he went. Um, the image of fire by Heraclitus—it's kind of a brilliant uh, image to me. It's—it's it's the closest one, um, and I, I believe you mentioned the church fathers. Don't some of the church fathers? liken the fire uh, that burns the bush but doesn't consume it as a kind of prototype of Jesus the Son or, or Christ's yeah, divinity? Pro-bole. Pro there's, a, there's a Greek word, pro-bole, and it applies uh, to light. And so the fact that the, the sun can give off light, but that never, de de uh, uh, it never runs out of light to give off. You see what I mean? Yeah. And they talked about this as as a kind of this sun emanating from the Father in the way that uh, light uh, emanates from the sun. And it actually got into the creed, uh, light from light, true mm -hmm. God from true God. So that that was a, a metaphor that they used to explain how you could be kind of the same thing and yet different at the same time. So, of course, what we're talking about here is the Trinity. And that was the big problem right after that. St. John gave us the kind of basic tools, the basic building blocks out of Revelation. And then for the next about three centuries, let's say to 325, the Council of Nicaea, uh, they sat around thinking, how do these parts fit together? And again, they couldn't have done it without Greek. They could not have done it without the Greek language. And in many ways, this whole, the Western fathers uh, were innocent of heresy largely because they couldn't understand Greek. And so they were kind of cut out of the discussion because to get involved in the heresy, you had to know the difference between homoousion and homoousion, which came to be that the second was the Arian formula that they tried to superimpose over the Orthodox formula of homoousion. One in being with the father, consubstantial with the father. That, mm -hmm. That's what it meant. That's what it meant. Uh, so the whole thing, it's basically one uh, large debate uh, in Greek philosophy uh, that was was necessary in order to be able to understand the Trinity in some type of systematic fashion so that you could come up with a creed that was an accurate representation of what you believed. 
I wanted to ask you about the the particularity of the Logos incarnate. You uh, in Logos Rising, you quote from the Roman Martyrology, and I'd never I'd never seen uh, this text put in one spot. I'll just normally I'm, I'm allergic to reading, but here it is. Uh, this is the Roman Martyrology that dates Christ's birth as the 25th of December. When ages beyond number had run their course from the creation of the world, when God in the beginning created heaven and earth and formed man in his own likeness, when century upon century had passed since the Almighty set his his, uh, bow in the clouds after the great flood as a sign of covenant and peace, in the 21st century since Abraham, our father in faith, came out of Ur of the Chaldees, in the 13th century since the people of Israel were led by Moses in the exodus from Egypt, around the thousandth year since David was anointed king, in the 65th week of the prophecy of Daniel, in the 194th Olympiad, in the year 752 since the foundation of the city of Rome, in the 42nd year of the reign of Caesar, Octavian, Augustus, when the world was at peace. That is a piece of prose right there. Um, why, why all this detail? Why, why this sense of we have to locate this not just as a Greek philosophical idea, but something that happened historically? Because the danger is that someone's going to say it's a myth. And the, the, the big breakthrough uh, in Greece was the move away from myth. And there are mm-hmm. other areas of the world where they never did it, never moved away from myth. If you, if you try it, Indians, uh, when they write philosophy, it always ends up with some type of superhero in mythology. So they were very careful about n- wanting to situate this in a historical context, an accurate historical context that everyone would recognize. So it's not just the Hebrew scripture, it's the, the Greek Olympiad and the Ab Orbe Condita, the founding of Rome. So that you know exactly what we're talking about mm-hmm. when this happened. And uh, uh, Christ did not appear in Athens or Jerusalem or Rome or any of the great urban cosmopolitan centers, but uh, backwoods Hick area. What, what's the, right. is there? A, what what is there a takeaway from that? Uh, just that he was uh, not going to be the powerful military ruler that the the Hebrews uh, wanted. He was not going to be like David. It was not going to be that way. And that became the big stumbling block among the Jews who would have preferred a powerful military leader. This was completely different. But it is it is Logos, and Logos does have some type of power. Mm-hmm. But you have to have the eyes uh, to see it, to recognize it. And that meant that you were not, it, 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 he's dealing with Hebrew chauvinism here. And the, probably the best example of Hebrew chauvinism is um, the Gospel of St. John, where they, 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 the Jews say to Jesus, we have this, we're the seed of Abraham. And mm-hmm. Jesus said, it doesn't matter. God could raise up stones. And so they had to bring in to deflate uh, Jewish hubris they had to bring in the Greek, the Olympiad and the history of Rome and all of these because that was important too. Not so much as to, situ- to situate it, but there are other people. God has taken contributions from other parts of humanity as well. So don't get uh, too uppity. And that also, became the breaking point. There's a, the notion of humility too. He didn't come uh, onto a, a superstar platform, but an unknown spot. Uh, that was, if anything, didn't have a good reputation. Can anything good come from Nazareth, right? Right, right. But on the other hand, he was receptive. The first 
the first non-Jews to see Jesus Christ were Persian astronomers and philosophers. Astronomy and philosophy were intimately linked at that point Mm -hmm. because they felt that God dwelled in the heavens and that the mechanism whereby he communicated his will were the the spheres, the celestial spheres. And that's why astrology was important. And astrology and astronomy were were sort of the same thing at that point Mm -hmm, in time. mm -hmm. Uh, So over time, the next couple of centuries, when John 1 verse 1 and following gets fleshed out and we get the, the formulation of the dogma of the Trinity and the, the relationship between the human nature and the divine nature of Jesus Christ and all the foundation of the sacraments and all that. And then we have this great figure, St. Augustine. And you devote a lot of time in Libido Dominandi, which is a phrase from City of God, I believe. Um, here yes. in Logos Rising, you say, Augustine is, the, in, a, in a way, is the one who discovered time. Uh, yeah, that, Christopher Dawson said that, and mm-hmm. I just appropriated it because that, that is true. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, uh, because uh, he was a, a Platonist as a young man, then he became a, a Manichaean and all, got involved in all of these uh, mystery cults in, the, in the, that time of the Roman Empire. Uh, but as a Platonist, uh, time had no meaning. Uh, Aristotle said time was the number of motion. And uh, that's kind of like uh, the clock. It goes around in a circle and it really doesn't go anywhere and it doesn't really have any meaning. And that's the time of scientific measurement and that's the time we use, okay? It's the number of motion. Mm. But he has a really sophisticated understanding of time that is really complicated in, in the city of God, which has to do with memory and expectation and goes deep into the psychological perception of time. But he also, the point of the book is that there is a plan for human history. Now, the only people who ever felt that way were the Hebrews. So this is a new concept to Greece because you can have people like um, Herodotus, uh, uh, who just, you know, interesting stories. If someone said it, he wrote it down. Not really true. We're not going to look into it, but it was just a lot of interesting stories. But there's no sense that there's some type of plan for human history. Uh, and that was the contribution of, of Augustine because he saw that in Christianity and was the one who made it explicit. Is the missing ingredient here telos? Like a, a, a pole, a, an engine, a drive, a purpose, a point? What is telos for the uninitiated? Telos is Aristotle used that term. And it means end or goal. And it means that all action has an end, a purpose. You don't act unless you have some type of purpose in mind. And that purpose is then the the, the end or the end point or goal of what, you, what you're doing. So he could see that with individual action, uh, with animals, they all have act for a purpose, but he couldn't see it for history because nobody, nobody did. Uh, there were certain, I mean, he was the greatest il maestro de color quesano, the master of all those who know, as Dante called him. But he had limitations because of his time and, and place. And there were things that he didn't know. And one of the things he didn't know was that actually history had a purpose, too. And that's what St. Augustine added to Greek philosophy. It, it's implicit if in Hebrew history. Obviously, it's salvation history. The Hebrew revelation is over time, and it's basically the story of the Hebrew people and how they were given the covenant and how they violated the covenant and went back and forth. 
So they got the history right, but it was the Greeks who could understand the kind of the metaphysical implications of history. And Augustine brought them together and says, yes, there's a purpose to history. And history has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So Aristotle knew that there was, he, that's when he wrote the poetics, he said the drama has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But he didn't know that history had one because he didn't know that there was going to be an incarnation, that there was going to be a logos, that God was going to enter into history because his God did not enter into history. Mm -hmm. His God was the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover that lived completely in a transcendent realm. And if maybe through the motion of the spheres, it was communicated, but we couldn't be sure. What is the nature of the two cities, city of man and city of God? City of man is uh, love of self to the extinction of God. And the city of God is love of God to the extinction of self. And those are the two options in human history. Uh, and nothing will change in that regard. And history will be the rise and fall of uh, empires that either embody one or the other ideal, or generally what it is, you start off embodying one and you end up embodying the other. And decadence sets in and the empire fails and collapses. <clears throat> the man who talked about that is Vico. And that's, there's mm -hmm. a chapter on him, but that's getting ahead of the story. Yeah. Uh, let's move to the rise of Islam and the separation a couple of centuries later. <clears throat> I've interviewed Robert Riley on his book, uh, The Closing of the Muslim Mind, and I, I learned a lot, about, and you talk about it in Logos Rising, um, the Mutazilite and the, uh, the more anti-rational uh, Asherites. Uh, one sees Allah as pure will, and he's totally capricious, he can lie, and so on, and the other is... Uh, more more akin to Christian philosophy. When did that split happen within Islam? Well, it's, it started as they, they the, the Muslims were the first to get Aristotle's text. The Christianity had some texts from Plato, uh, largely through Boethius, the translation, but it was the Muslims who had Aristotle, and they were just confronted with a, a dichotomy here because Aristotle said the world was eternal and Islam said it was created because they got their idea from Genesis. That's where the Muslims got their idea. And so you have this conflict and how are we going to resolve the conflict? Now, I try to portray this as a conflict, an internal conflict between Arabia and Persia. That's kind of the way I see the development of Islam. <clears throat> the Arabs, even up till... 1907, the 1970s, 85% of Saudi Arabia earned its living from animal husbandry. So that was camels and goats. And 2,500 years ago, the, the Persians or the Iranians were philosophers. As I said, the three people that first, the first, three first non-Hebrews to see Jesus Christ were Persian philosophers. So they had a head start. Uh, and they considered themselves a superior culture. And they were, it was a superior culture. But unfortunately, they lost the war. And the Arabs were mobilized by this, by this epic, this national epic called the Quran. It's the Arabic national epic. It's like the Aeneid was to the Romans or the Nibelungenlied to the Germanic tribes and El Cid to the Spaniards. 
and it energizes and unifies this group of people and they become extremely powerful militarily and they go out and conquer the world. And part of the world they conquered was Persia. And so at this point you have a conflict. There are plenty, I mean, part of this was my experience going to Iran and dealing with the Iranians, talking to them. Uh, and then talking, you know, off the record to uh, people, you know, and what was your experience? And the experience is, you know, the, the one thing the Iranians prize is poetry. They have some of the greatest poetry in the world. Hafez, for example, I visited his tomb in Shiraz when I was there. Uh, Goethe thought he was so great that he, he did a, a, tried to imitate Hafez. Uh, and the, so the, the, the Persian children memorize Hafez's poetry, other, po other poetry as well. Ferdowsi. Mm -hmm. Ferdowsi wrote a long epic called the Shahnameh. And they memorize it and they read it, and but they only read excerpts because it's so long. And then at some point they go to the bazaar and they pick up the unexpurgated edition and suddenly you open it and, for, and Ferdowsi thinks that the worst thing that ever happened to Iran was Islam. The conquered. We were conquered by barbarians. We're poets and philosophers, and these camel jockeys came in and destroyed our culture. And what are we going to do about it? All I can do is cry tears. And so this is part of a part of the consciousness of the Persian people to this day, to this day. And as a result, it just there. There's this uneasiness that that I that I noticed. Uh, because when you talk to them, you know, I've been in a situation where you talk to the mullah and the mullah is just this ferocious advocate of sola scriptura. So, you know, I or, tried to talk about, he, you know, let's talk about the wheel. Let's talk about the dog. How was the dog domesticated? I'm trying to explain this because we're, I'm in Mashad. This is on the Eurasian plain. This is where the horse, the wheel, all these things. And he said, no, no, that's wrong. I said, what do you mean it's wrong? He said, a prophet explained it. A prophet, I said, what do you, what do you mean? Islam is like a, a thousand, it's like 10,000 years in the future. We've had, we've had dogs and wheels, domesticated dogs for 10,000 years. Uh, before for 10,000 BC. No, no. Everything uh, comes from the Quran because the Quran is the source of all knowledge. And so if it doesn't come from the Quran, it comes from okay. the Hadith. And the Hadith are created to make up the gaps in the Quran. And so as a result, you have this anti intellectual uh, superstructure imposed on the Persian mind, and it just doesn't fit. And these it are the, doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. These are the anti-rational Asherite Muslims for whom you, you said right. it's they like triumph. soul script. Could this, you say this triumph? And, and yeah, I wanted to ask about soul scripture. The Muslims did not succeed. They right. they did not. They were they were eventually extinguished. Could you and say so? It's, you it's, had uh, tragic figures uh, in Islamic history who try and kind of make some type of connection between uh, faith and reason. And they, they end up getting their heads chopped off more, more right, than the, not. It just their, does not, it does not take. Islam right. always reverts to some type of Asherite, some type of fundamentalism. And could you say it's, it doubles down in a more extreme direction from Sola Scriptura by identifying the Quran with Allah himself, that the Quran is kind of eternalized? 
Well, they, 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 have, they have what is going to be a, a very difficult, a, a notion of divine revelation that is going to be very difficult to defend. So their, their concept of divine revelation is that the angel Gabriel came down from heaven where the Koran exists. The book is actually in heaven. He came down and he dictated it into the ear of the prophet, who then wrote it down word for word, even though uh, he was illiterate and didn't know how to write. Uh, now, okay, that's, that's really a strong claim. Yeah. And the problem is the problem is that now scripture scholarship is being applied to the Quran. And what you start to realize is that, well, no, there's these were passages that were all picked up elsewhere. How do you square that with this dictation into into Muhammad's ear? So just to give you one instance, I was invited to talk about uh, in Tehran. I was invited to talk about mercy, about the first shura of the Quran. So I contact my Islam, my friend at the University of Warsaw in Poland, who's a, an Islamic scholar, and I said, where does this come from? It doesn't seem like a beginning. He says, it's not. It's a Syriac Christian prayer. So how are you going to square this with uh, the notion that I've overexpressed of revelation? How are you going to, to make these two things come together? I don't think you can. And I think they know that, and as a result, there's always going to be some type of reversion to a type of fundamentalism because it can't withstand the uh, rational mm -hmm. scrutiny in the way that the Bible can. And is that, this, That's the problem. Yeah. This insight here seems to be the one that got then-Pope Benedict XVI in so much trouble uh, after his speech at Regensburg. Uh, identifying right. uh, the the disconnect between reason and revelation leading to an impulse toward violence, and in response there was there were violent reactions around the world. Uh, is this disconnect right. between lo lo logos as God and and the interface between human reason and what God can reveal? Is that behind the fact that science did not arise from from the Islamic world? Yes. Yes, that's what every, the big puzzle about the Islamic world is, why didn't science arise there? Because they had a, 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 a huge head start compared to Europe. Huge head yeah. start. Wait, why wait. didn't it arise there? Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, I, I mean, the point of my book is, well, because you didn't understand the Trinity. Because you got your notion of Jesus Christ from Nestorian heretics, because that's all, they're the only people who were, around in the what became the Islamic world and they they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God so it's it's an extremely it's a con it's a concept that came from revelation it was articulated uh, through Greek philosophy but once it became articulated you had to get with the plan because if you didn't you you were le history left you behind mm -hmm. and that's precisely what happened to Islam they were left behind I mean, there were heroic figures like Averroes, uh, yeah. a heroic effort to basically square the circle and uh, unite revelation with uh, philosophy. But the revelation you're using is the Koran, which is not a, a complete form of revelation. It's kind of like it's a truncated form. It's it's a distorted form. I think the best the best image I got was the basically these the, the Arabians are in the middle of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, the gospel has already been preached on the Hejaz, 
which is the western bank, uh, no, the eastern bank of the Red Sea, in Syriac. But it's never been translated into Arabic. And so you have these guys hearing these stories, like from afar, like the caravans coming through. And there's this great story. It's about, it's about Jesus. He, he manna from heaven. It's incredible. It's the Eucharist. And so I'm thinking, what is all this? They're trying to put it together. And they come up with the, the story of the flying table. The flying table. What is that? Well, it's their kind of trying to understand the gospel from afar through kind of broken translation. And it's the Eucharist. It's a combination of manna and the Eucharist. <laughs> it's interesting. Well, the Eucharist like, is manna. Like a game of telephone. You know? Yeah, yeah, by the time it gets to the that's, end. That's, that's mm. easy. And I'm saying that, well, they had no concept of Logos. Because we, let's face it, we don't have a concept of Logos either. We have the word word, which is very truncated. So they didn't, so what did they, what did they come up with? Well, it's the book. Logos is a book. And the book is the Koran. And all knowledge is in the Koran. Well, that's a kind of. Uh, a, a mishearing of the word logos. You know what I mean? It's a yeah. kind of, it, we, these are people who think in very specific concrete terms and they didn't have the centuries of Greek philosophy to allow them to come to be comfortable with abstractions. They didn't yeah. have it. This people of the book thing sounds like a post Nostra Aetate uh, bit of modernist word salad. Uh, we're, Catholics are not people of the book. Right, we're we're people of the we're people of the person. Sola scriptura. If right. you mean sola scriptura, it's never been that. We've never believed in sola scriptura. That's a it's a in many ways it's a Muslim concept, and Luther picked it up and he imposed it on the West with disastrous results. Do you think uh, Islam with Heller Balak comes down to uh, a a kind of a complex heresy? Yes. It certainly derived from heresy. Mm -hmm. what you, one of the things that I point out in the chapter on Augustine is basically Catholicism died when Augustine died. It died in North Africa. It was take, the, the, the Augustine was using the police power of the Roman Empire to keep the Donatists in check. The Donatists were Judaizers. There was a Judaizing sect, which is always a danger to Catholicism, always a danger to Christianity, like Christian Zionists today. And, uh, and uh, they found it more plausible because they liked the idea of being a separate people, which is what the Jews liked. And so Augustine uses the, the Roman soldiery, the police power to keep them in check. And then the empire collapses and the Donuses take over. It's over. That's the end of Catholicism. You, we have no idea of how how threatened the church was at this point because the entire East succumbed to heresy. And then because they were weakened by heresy, Islam took root there because Islam grew out of the Nestorian heresy. I hope Christians in America pay attention to this because I, I keep saying that, that um, there's a certain kind of American conservative that's very rah-rah for the United States. And it, the United States is a great country, uh, but it's not... It wasn't promised the Holy Spirit, and it wasn't created um, without original sin. As the church, which was strong in Augustine's day, is now, you know, a goner, the same thing could happen to the church in the West, right? That's one of the premises of your book. It happened in North Africa, that's for right. sure. It did happen in North Africa, which was one of the most vibrant centers of the church. If it weren't for Alexandria, we would not have the Trinity. 
Mm-hmm. Alexandria was a bastion of orthodoxy, a Catholic orthodoxy, and Antioch was the antithesis. It was a hotbed of Judaizing. This is St. John Chrysostom was in Antioch when he wrote Adversus Judeos because it was infected with Judaizing. Meaning a wanting to return to the old rites that had been uh, fulfilled in Christ? Right. Sensual, carnal religion. The biggest problem in, a, in a, a Christmas Day was uh, Jewish services with musical were musical extravaganzas, and the unwitting Christians were just lured because they wanted to hear music and they loved this kind of spectacle and blah blah blah. It was carnal religion, and Newman says it predisposed them to be incapable of understanding the Trinity. They got used to carnal religion. Sounds and like, so you couldn't think uh, outside the, the the then box of basically a monotheism. It sounds like the the gay Broadway ballads that ruin Catholic worship music today. Impossible it's to sing, always, kind of itch, itchy all, ears all Broadway sound. Do you want, like even even the motu proprio on sacred music that Pius X wrote in about 1907, I believe. Mm-hmm. He said, "Look, I love Verdi, but it's not appropriate for mass." Yeah, You know, it's great music, but that's not the point. It's not the point here to have great music. The point here is to serve the mass, have the music serve a higher, uh, a higher uh, right. a goal and tell us. And for that, you know, well, how about Palestrina? He's good. So he kind of made Palestrina the Thomas Aquinas of liturgical right. music. We're going to get back to Thomas Aquinas and Leo Thirteenth in, in a minute. But uh, Pope St. Pius X, I mean, he did his best, but he had no exposure to the St. Louis Jesuits. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> All right. So yes. I, I, one of my first podcast interviews was with a guy, um, uh, I believe he was a Sunni Muslim. His name's, his Christian name is Mario Joseph. And Mario was uh, studying to be uh, an imam uh, in India. And he was converted to Christ and ultimately to the Catholic Church, not from a preacher, not from a radio show or the New Testament, but by reading the Quran. And what got Mario interested is this notion of the word. The, the, the Quran uses the phrase word of God several times. So he goes to his, his mentor and he asks these pointed questions about if Allah is one, but Allah has a word, doesn't that imply at least two? And his mentor uh, took a strip off and screamed at him and so on. To make a long story slightly longer, uh, Mario's brother and father's uh, brothers and father uh, pinned him down and tortured him uh, until he renounced Christ. And uh, the story's told. I'll try to put a, put a link in there. But it goes to show that there is a kind of a nascent idea of Logos in the Quran itself, even though they yes. there's, this, there's these recommendations to violence. It's there in a seed form. Yes, there's a huge uh, conflict here over the, the roots of the Quran. Uh, and one of the uh, Iranian ladies that I spent, she was really interested in that and talked about the fact that it's very difficult to find old Korans because they were burned. So in many ways, the history of Iran is libraries being burned to the ground. And of course, Hegel took that uh, in his history and talked about the story of the library of Alex- Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And when the Muslim conqueror arrives, he asks the question, is 
this library, either the books in the library, either say the same thing as the Quran, in which case they are superfluous, or they contradict the Quran, in which case they are heretical. But in both cases, we're going to burn it to the ground. Mm-hmm. Now, as soon as I say that, my Muslim friends jump up and say, he never, that's, that's, blah, blah, blah. But it was a, a story that got told in Egypt for a long time. And even if it's not true exactly of the Library of Alexandria, that's the history of Persia. Persia is a tragic story in many ways because they're on that great pathway out of the Eurasian plain and everybody kind of marches through here. And the first thing they do when they get here is burn down your library. So there's a kind of tragedy here. Uh, uh, and, and, and this is... Where where were we going? I, I've lost. I'm, where where are we going with this? You well, bring yeah, I asked about the 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 nascent uh, sense of of word, aka logos, right. in in the Quran itself. And you were saying there's a controversy about the very foundation, uh, right? And so so basically, what you had is uh, there were all of these competing versions of the Quran, and the Caliph at a certain point announces that. Uh, we're going to limit them to seven versions or nine versions. I forget which. Now, the caliph imposed this on the, on the book. And so, in many ways, it's God is an exalted caliph who has power and imposes his will by force majeure. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, resolved, that's supposed to resolve the question. Well, it doesn't resolve the question. And, and burning the Koran is not going to resolve this source problem. And that's what we're dealing with now. We're going that's, to have to, the, the Islam is, has, was off in the desert by itself for centuries. And now, thanks to our neoconservative uh, friends, uh, the United States has to invade uh, that group. And they're going to conquer Islam to make the world safe for Israel and as a result, they bring this ferment, this intellectual ferment that they're going to have to go through. They're just going to have to go through it. Well, certainly the, this American empire's addiction to uh, democracy as as a kind of Shangri-La, heaven on earth, is heavily problematic. <clears throat> I want to ask you about this impulse to book burn, because that's that's doubling down on this irrationalist spirit. If you're going to, if your desire to book burn is so powerful that you're willing to burn your own holy book. That's the that's a snapshot of irrationality. Well, I mean, look at look at the birth of Christianity. For let's say three hundred years, let's say to three twelve, uh, which is when Constantine made it the uh, Catholicism the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire. Three three centuries where all you guys all you can do all you have to do is debate. You don't have any responsibility, any governing responsibility. So we're going to have a long debate, and you have the basis in the Greek language. You've got a sophisticated language you can work with. You've got the greatest minds, and we can come up with the Trinity. And now, finally, it's it, it's almost the same time. So 325 is Nicaea, 312, Constantine makes it. So within 13 years, uh, all right, we nailed the Trinity down, and now we're ready to to start ruling the empire. And, and in effect, you have to do that after 410 because the empire collapsed. So it was great. It worked out fine. Obviously, lots of conflict. But if you compare that to Islam, it's completely different. So you have no, you've got a, a, a group of people who are now going to impose Arabic, 
which is not a sophisticated language like Greek. You're going to impose this on conquered nations which are superior to you, like Persia. And uh, you've got no debate because you're involved in warfare from the beginning. And you're conquering, you're, you're, you're conquering everybody, and now you've got to set up some type of administration all within, you know, decades. And it's not working. I mean, the whole point of uh, uh, Shia Islam is that they wish that they had been there when the wicked Caliph Yazid had murdered uh, 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 Ali. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have this split, and I, I feel, I think it's the split between Persia and Arabia. It's a split between the descendants. Uh, is it Should they have a lineal descendants, like actually uh, uh, Muhammad's progeny, or should it be the caliph? Well, the caliph won, and he killed off uh, the, the prophet's grandson, and as a result, uh, the caliph is in charge, and the yeah. caliph solves things by burning books. He's got nine versions. They contradict each other. Sorry, but they're all right, even when they contradict each other, because I said so, and I'm the caliph. And that has had an impact on Islam to this day. And the caliph is a kind of a vicar of Allah, who himself is capricious and contradictory, because he's pure will. Well, what you're doing (laughs) is projecting the caliph onto God. Mm Mm-hmm. So God is an exalted caliph. And so Maimonides said this, and the Jewish philosopher in the Middle Ages said that God is a a caliph who goes for an afternoon ride in his carriage, and when he gets to the gate, he doesn't know whether he's going to go right or left. So he doesn't know. God doesn't know. It's pure will. There's no logos here. Mm -hmm. It's pure will. And, And so your job is to submit to this inscrutable will of God. And that's it, period. Well, that's not conducive to science. And that's precisely what happened. And that leads into the whole issue of Aquinas and Averroism and the rise of science in the West. Mm -hmm. Because you you can't, as I said, with that mullah I'm talking to, well, wait a minute, you can figure this out. Uh, You know, maybe they just threw bones to the dogs and the dog came close to the fire and gradually. No, no, it's a prophet. Everything has to come from scripture. So then they take me, I go from Mashhad, now I'm going to on a tour in Golestan, and they take me to an enzyme factory. Well, I felt mm-hmm. like going back to, I didn't see Naziri after that, but I felt like going back to him and say, did the prophet tell these people at the University of Golestan how to create an enzyme factory? That's not what the people told me. They, they, the guy, one guy told me, well, I'm a chemistry professor and I had a friend who, uh, who was uh, good at raising money and we got together and that's why we have the enzyme factory. Where was the profit? Right. It's well, not there. Well, that's the admission of, sec- I do. That's the admission of secondary causes, which is the basis of science. That's exactly the point, right. that there's no secondary causality in Islam. Everything is done by the sovereign will of God, including your actions including your actions. So Mm -hmm. if there's no secondary causality, are you going to have the patience? This is Stanley. This is Stanley Yockey's example, or like Herschel, the astronomer. Are you going to have the patience to sit there night after night and watch these little blips move around in the sky and try and figure that out? If there's no rationality behind it? No, you're not. Right. You're not. Let me kick the tires of this a little bit. And uh, it's a kind of a devil's advocate question. And if I don't ask it, people say, what did he ask him about, th- about this? Uh, the knock on you is uh, that your criticisms of uh, 
Jews that are involved on the wrong side of, of Logos. Uh, and there's a long list we can, you've enumerated them in, in uh, other interviews and in other books. Why couldn't it be that the Jewish people, God's people, by virtue of their announcing and successfully delivering the Messiah, are on the side of Logos? It's incomplete because they don't have the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, but they did give the world uh, uh, monotheism and the moral law and the transcendence and, and the Ten Commandments. Um, why can't it be that the Jews are incomplete and it's the Muslims who are more anti-Logos. I mean, you can't open a newspaper without seeing some thug blowing himself up or killing uh, innocent people or going on some rampage. You see what see the basis of my objection? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I I was uh, the the answer is that <clears throat> the Jews uh, the Jews rejected Logos. The Muslims well, never learned Logos. They never picked it up. They never had it. They the, are a Logos. It's not as it's it's the difference between rejection and ignorance, and that's a big difference. What about rejection in the form of domesticating it and making Jesus into a Nestorian or or Arian Jehovah's Witness kind of nice guy who is like Mister Rogers? Yeah, yeah. I, and what what what's the what is that? It's Judaizing. So in a sense, you're going back. This is Newman. Newman wrote a brilliant book about Arianism in the fourth century, and he's brilliant. Uh, because he talks about the role the Jews played. Now, this is pre-Holocaust. It's not America. There's no ADL around. And he's just being frank and saying this was all Judaizing heresy. The, the, heret the Jews were at the heart of every revolutionary heretical movement of that age. And so later, Rabbi uh, uh, Louis Israel Neumann says exactly the same thing in a book he wrote. Uh, so we're agreeing. The Jews were behind these heretical movements. They had rejected Logos. They were furious in their rejection of Logos. They had become revolutionaries. Simon Bar Kokhba, 135, a furious revolutionary who basically spayed, if you don't have the Jewish revolutionary spirit, we're kicking you out. You're not a real Jew. This is the type of mm -hmm. ant antagonism that the Jews had toward Logos, which you do not find in Islam. They just didn't have it to begin with. And if you don't have it to begin with, you can't reject it. What about the um, Protestant revolt? In what way was that a representative of the forces of anti-Logos? Uh, or, or do with, I have it exactly first all, wrong? First of all, let's clear the air here. The English, the Reformation in England had nothing to do with theology whatsoever. It was a looting operation, pure and simple. And then there was a little bit of holy water or theology sprinkled on it to justify it after the fact. Okay, every Protestant country was a looting operation because the aristocrats wanted church property. No exceptions here. And Germany was no exception to this rule. But Germany had a guy named Luther who yeah. came up with some type of justification. Uh, Father Martin of, Luther. Father, he's a, a priest, okay, and he was a man who could not control his passions. You probably read that chapter in Degenerate Moderns. Yeah, Luther's legacy, worth the price. Luther's of the book. legacy, yeah. right? And so he uh, he's he's a man who has trouble controlling his passions. He breaks with the church. The the uh, the aristocrats spirit him off to the Wartburg. He's just being tortured by by lust. 
And finally, he capitulates and he marries. They were breaking into convents and uh, this was women's liberation. And you drag the nuns out and then you offer them to uh, arch the Archbishop of Mainz or something like that mm-hmm. if he joins the Lutheran party. And so Luther finally had to succumb to it himself and he married Katharina von Bora, whose name was nickname was Keta and he called her Keta, which is the German word for chain. And at this point, he wrote the enslaved will. And at this point, <laughs> accidentally autobiographical Islam. about his his marriage, is that where ball yes. and chain comes from? The this the you know the Hallmark card image of marriage as a ball and chain. I wonder if it's from Luther's wife. Hmm. Her other name, and he, he called her Catena in Latin, which is the Latin right. word for chain. And so he'd write to other ex priests uh, and say, you know, my chain greets your chain. Uh, in other words, right. this this the enslaved will turned. He, in other words, he could not deal with the guilt anymore. And so he had to blame God. God did it. So now we're back to Islam and fate. You know, I had to do it. And once you do take this step, you hate reason. Because yeah. what, what, is re, what is the fundamental reason we deal with every day? It's practical reason, which is known as morality. And here is his conscience accusing him. And how does he deal with his conscience? You broke your vows. You have no right to be sleeping with this woman. Who do you think you are? And he says, God made me do it. The will is enslaved. Kind of like the reverse of uh, theology of Flip Wilson. Not the devil, but God made me do it. Right. And, and lot, it had, yeah. as you know, it, it had consequences for Hegel as well. But again, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Uh, true or false, Luther really did say that reason is the devil's whore. Yes, he said that. He was very explicit. And he hated philosophy. He hated Aristotle. He hated philosophy. And at this point, what you had was the breaking apart of the Thomistic mm-hmm. synthesis. Could you say the word the synthesis? breaking apart. The synthesis is is a, a pretty magnificent synonym for for Thomism. Yes, it's faith and reason, faith and reason. You cannot have one; uh, you need both of them. And so, what you had here was Ruther sola fide, faith alone. Reason's a whore. It's just faith, and this flowed from. The Devotio Moderna, which flowed from nominalism, and nominalism had a huge following in Germany. All the Germans were nominalists. What's, William what's of the- Ockham, an Englishman, fled to Munich because he was on the lamb. He needed to get away from church authorities. And I ate dinner at the at the monastery where he died of the plague. <laughs> Not a very appetizing. <laughs> That's making prospect, me hungry. Making me hungry now. No. <laughs> uh, so, what is what is nominalism? Definition of nominalism, as opposed to uh, the remedy that Thomas Aquinas proposes. It's universals exist in the mind, and that led to German idealism. Direct root there to German idealism. So, is it a category of reality or is it a category of the mind? Well, it's all universals or categories of the mind, which means that we can't know anything about God's being. And so it, we're back again to will. Mm-hmm. Again, we keep reverting to this kind of Islamic notion that God is pure will. That's the nominalist God. And that's why uh, Aquinas uh, accused, well, obviously Occam came after Aquinas, but he accused people who said that of, of blasphemy. Because you're saying there's no order in the mind of God and, and that you can't apprehend that, that order. So Because if, the universals never go beyond your own mind. I want to understand this. If 
universals it, and, and truths are, are only categories of the mind. And you can't know if your mind is a sufficient receptacle for external reality. You can't prove it. Isn't that a kind of fundamentalistic, a fundamentalistic faith? You have, you have faith in something that you can't prove, namely that your mind is up to the task of understanding reality. Right. Right. So let's let's forget it. Well, I'm sick of all this scholastic disputation. Let's just talk about devotion. Let's mm-hmm. just be devotional about this thing because it'll make you feel good. Well, that's a very dangerous path to tread. And we uh, so it so uh, that synthesis split apart into devotional religion and science. And that's the world we live in today. Okay, so we are now in a battle between religion and science. Uh, I went to mass for the first time today in about six weeks, I guess. And there I'm I didn't I didn't have one, but everyone is wearing a face mask and we're all sitting in every other pew because the state told us the state told the bishops to do this. There was no consultation whatsoever. You are going to do what we say as the state because we are based on science and science is contact with ultimate reality. We have contact with ultimate reality. You religious people do not. So therefore you do what we say. That's the relevance to right now, what's happening right now. And is that all flowing from the enlightenment presupposition that reason and science have beaten religion in the arm wrestle over who has control of ultimate right. reality. Right. And there yet, was, there yeah. was, a, go ahead. Well, tracking through the big picture of Logos rising, it seems like Logos works in history in very unexpected ways. When you think it's dead and dust is on it, it rises up again and in a way that no one could have predicted beforehand. And the, the guy that comes to mind now as you're talking is Hegel. And Hegel's understanding, the, the chapter in Hegel is very rich, and I, I, I had to consult the dictionary a lot. So, uh, But I do recommend that people put on their, their philosophy nerd and pay attention to the Hegel chapter, because here's this guy, uh, son of the Enlightenment in many ways, not a Catholic, but kind of drawn to Catholicism comes up with this observation of history in which a synthesis is met by an antithesis and and from that comes a, a, a thesis antithesis no, thesis, and then yeah thesis, thesis first right synthesis synthesis yeah well that's a kind of secular version of divine providence in history in a inchoate way isn't it am i misreading it absolutely it's the trinity Here's here's Hegel trying to come up with the Enlightenment vocabulary that's going to describe the Trinity. Well, you're that's true. That's a good project. I I applaud you for doing that because we're talking about something serious now, especially compared to what's going on in England, which is Hume has uh, run the whole thing into the ground into pure skepticism. And Kant resurrected Logos in Germany, and Hegel is the culmination of that that period uh, of history, and now he's dealing with the Trinity. This is great. This is great. If you can do it and don't screw it up, but if you're going to do that, then you should listen to what the Catholics say, because they're saying, if you're going to talk about the Trinity, we're talking about contemplation. And it really is serious business, and you really have to have the mind prepared by uh, religious exercises. And let's cut to the chase here. The best way to prepare is not screwing your chambermaid, which is what Mm -hmm. Hegel is doing. 
Was he, he got swept up in the sexual revolution in Yena? Uh, it was a kind of Schelling was having this affair when he arrived. Schelling is a handsome guy. He is the superstar of his age. And Hegel's kind of a dork. Uh, and he ends up having an affair with his chambermaid. And he's writing this at the same time, he's writing the phenomenology of the spirit. Well, he's it's not going to work. It's not going to have a happy ending. I guarantee you not going to have a happy ending. And it doesn't. Was Hegel in some ways a crypto Catholic in the way he's his through his lens? I mean, he was he was infatuated with Catholic girls when he was a teenager and also with Catholic culture. It was all just one big kind of erotic fascination. And there was something there because I don't want to badmouth Eros. I wouldn't mm -hmm. be here without Eros. Mm -hmm. OK, none of us would be. Uh, uh, but at a certain point, it didn't work out. And then he got involved uh, uh, with this affair that uh, where he's got an illegitimate child. And then when you're in a situation like this, you tend to crave respectability. And I think that was uh, Hegel's Achilles heel, where he wanted to be. He wanted that endowed chair. He really wanted that. He really wanted that more than anything else in the world. And he was willing to adjust whatever he was doing to make sure he got that end. And that meant suppressing Catholicism. That's a good segue when you said endowed chair to the the movement of Thomism through Jacques Maritain to Notre Dame and a kind of beachhead of Thomistic thought post Leo the thirteenth. Is it Attorney Patris? His uh, encyclical right. wanting right. So, a resurgence. So the whole the whole project went down the drain. The whole Thomistic project went down the drain once again. And then we had the the rise of the third Thomism. Uh, thanks to uh, Leo the Thirteenth and a group of people, including a German by the name of Kleutgen, uh, who basically had to basically stop uh, this infatuation with German idealism. We're not getting anywhere here. It's too hazy. We're going to go back to basics, and that means back to Aristotle, Thomas, metaphysical certainty and that's going to be the foundation and beginning with the revolution of 1848 they start building on this and the culmination is eterni patis the flower of the thomist revival at this point uh where leo the 13th says thomism is the official philosophy of the catholic church and every catholic institution should implement this and that's exactly what happens now it didn't happen in germany uh, because of the Kulturkampf, because of Bismarck uh, unifying Germany and turning it into a Prussian uh, uh, satrapy, uh, mm -hmm. the Catholics became second-class <clears throat> citizens. Mm -hmm. But it did take on in France. It take it took off in France with people like the Dominicans. Obviously, they're the spiritual children of Thomas Aquinas and someone like Garigou Lagrange. This Reginald uh, Garigou Lagrange, the uh, one of the dissertation directors of father carol vortiwa same guy yes T taught in rome so you so you've yeah. got so you've got this man at the beginning of the 20th century and there's this huge outpouring of thomistic thought in france and there's a young man in paris at the time they're all following uh, uh, uh bergson which is a kind of he's the heraclitus of the 20th century process kind of philosophy henri bergson and uh, uh henri mm -hmm. bergson and uh, 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 Maritain especially, who is a student, and they come together and suddenly realize Bergson is not it. It's Thomism. And Maritain converts to Catholicism. And then we have the disruption of World War One. And at this point, all of these people start looking to the new world. 
And they they talk about Europe is like Constantinople after 1453 when the Turks overrun it and we have to carry off the manuscripts to the West. Mm -hmm. And so they start, they go to the United States and not not just anywhere, they go to Harvard. Etienne Gilson went to Harvard and gave lectures there and they were receptive. Even more so, Maritain shows up at the University of Chicago where you've got a Jewish Thomist and a Baptist Thomist. Is that uh, Mortimer, Adler, Mortimer Adler? Yeah. Jew, the Jewish Thomist. And they, it's just pure, it's just, Adler has realized, look, we've got Dewey, this is ridiculous, it's superficial, he's a powerful figure here, but there's no depth to this Deweyism. And so we're going to introduce something that has real depth, so let's bring the Thomist in, and you have a civil war at the University of Chicago. Who is the I Baptist? The, uh, what's, what's the, uh, Hutchins. Hutchins, okay. Hutchins, and, the president. But Matt Adler died a Catholic. He did convert in, in the end. Yeah, he did convert, mm -hmm. so in the end. But at that time, he was a Jewish Thomist, which was kind of an anomaly. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, everybody, they're on their way. Uh, yeah. I, there was a huge outburst of Thomistic, uh, this, this is what I'm trying to say here is, this is the vehicle of Logos in human history. So Logos crossed from France. The Thomistic revival comes to America. America at this point is the savior of the world uh, because of what happened in Europe. And all uh, this is the most fertile ground you can imagine. And this is why Tom, uh, Maritain and Gilson are so excited about coming to the new world. So Gilson ends up in, uh, in Canada and Maritain after the battle at the University of Chicago, ends up at Notre Dame University. Mm -hmm. Doesn't really end up there as the, you know, never really took a job there, but he was the, the spirit, the moving spirit there in the 1950s. And this is 1953, Notre Dame University now says, Thomism, they, they take Eterni Patris to heart and they say Thomism is now the official philosophy of the Notre Dame philosophy department. If you want a serious Catholic education, you come to Notre Dame. And in doing that, they're trying to position themselves as the national Catholic university. But everyone was doing it. I mean, I went to, I went to a Jesuit university at the tail end of this movement. I was, uh, got there in 66, my freshman year, 1966. By 68, the anti-Thomism reaction had swept through and destroyed that beautiful edifice. It happened at Notre Dame. Notre Dame did have a kind of leadership role in Catholic universities. We know that because of Hesburgh's Land O'Lakes statement. He could get these people in a room and twist their arm and get them to agree. And they also basically took the lead in destroying Thomism. This, the so, man who did this was a, an Irish priest by the name of Ernan McMullen. Ernan and Ernan McMullen yeah. strangled Logos in its cradle in the New World. The Land Lake Statement, uh, that's, that's basically the divorce papers between Catholic University, higher education, and the magistrate of the Catholic Church, right? So we're talking July 1967, Land Lakes, Wisconsin. Right. Uh, I just did a it's video not, on... We're not talking about the magisterium. We're talking about basically theft 
of property. It's the alienation of right. church property. It's illegal. It's pretty much it followed. Uh, what followed was a legal maneuver where they put the Notre Dame under a lay board of trustees and thereby alienated it from the gotcha. Catholic Church. Yeah, I had the opportunity now, to. The, the yeah, intellectual equivalent was mm-hmm. what I just described about basically kicking Thomism out of the philosophy department. We're going to have, first it starts off with pluralism. And then it all ends up that we're all going to be analytic philosophers. uh, And that's just boring. It's just quibbling about insignificant points. And then it just descends into nothingness. And the vacuum, we all know that nature abhors a vacuum. And so the man who filled that vacuum was not in the philosophy department. He was in the English department. His name was Joe Buttigieg. And he happens to be the father of the guy, the homosexual who ran to, for president, uh, the nomination of president of the United States. The F- Foucault Gramsci scholar who brought all right. of that chaos Foucault, to Notre Dame. This okay. is the man who brought Foucault and Gramsci, and that filled the vacuum that the absence of Thomism had created. I, I did some research on the Land Lakes statement. I, I read it, and I, I saw the list of signatories, including Father uh, Theodore Hesburgh, the longtime lion uh, president of, uh, of Notre Dame, who you spent some time at the end of Logos Rising talking about. Um, another signatory is John Cogley, who was there for some reason. No one seems to know what. Uh, didn't really have ecclesial connections. He ended up becoming an Episcopalian and a, and a dissenter from Humana Vitae. Surprise, surprise. Another signatory was an up-and-coming priest named Father Theodore McCarrick. Did you know that? Yes, yeah. I did know that. So, more bad fruits, pun intended, of the Land yes. Lake statement. Exactly. And we could go into that whole discussion about, as Mary Tan said, the fish rots first at the head. Mm-hmm. So when you destroy your certainty about ultimate reality, when you destroy the metaphysical foundation, you tend to want to gratify your passions, even when they're illicit. That's what happened with Luther. That's what happened to Theodore McCarrick. That's what happened to the church, in a nutshell. There's a, maybe we can finish with your anecdote about uh, Rockefeller and Hesburgh going to Rome to help Paul VI, his friend, uh, Cardinal Giovanni Montini, help draft Humana Vitae to incorporate, you know, the message that Catholic teaching is wrong all, all along. Um, pick yes. it up from there. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 I actually, I'm the guy who discovered that because I went to the Rockefeller archives and they showed me great, great place to do research and they gave me the Hesburgh folder from the... Um, Population Council archives, and that's where the letter there. Uh, Hesburgh arranged a meeting between John D. Rockefeller III and Paul VI, and Rockefeller volunteered to write Humane Vitae for Paul VI. Mm-hmm. One of those stunning moments. Henry James could have written a novel about that. <laughs> and for some reason, Montini didn't go along with Rockefeller's plan and uh, wrote his own encyclical and outraged everyone. And that's where the revolution broke out at Catholic U. And that's where Hesburgh betrayed Montini, who was his friend, by siding with, with the dissenters. So this deranged everyone. And one of the people who was there when it happened, actually, I was... They were alive when this happened, but too young to understand it. But uh, was Ralph McInerney? I was going to say Ralph McInerney is Ralph, the man who fought yeah. mm-hmm. 
to preserve Thomism at Notre Dame. Uh, fought a valiant rear end battle and uh, lost. Uh, he, he basically said, okay, well, let's take it out of the, okay, Thomism won't be the heart of the philosophy department, but we'll have a, um, a Maritan Institute and we'll have a Maritan Center and the Medieval Institute. So we'll make it a historical study. Well, that's not the way, uh, well, that was not the intention of Leo the Thirteenth. This is not historical obscurantism about the Middle Ages. This is supposed to be a vibrant, living philosophy. But Ralph felt that that's the way he could salvage it, and that's what he did, and that's what he did. And I was there uh, when this happened. So this begins my connection with Ralph McInerney, uh, who, a man I who was I also just, a novelist. Right. Yes, the great. Yeah. He, he he was he was a genius when it came to writing fiction. He was a genius. He wrote too much. Uh, he should have concentrated, but he just was a genius, and he made a lot of money, including the Father Dowling series, which made him even more money because it got turned into a TV show. Mm -hmm. And possibly you and I would not be speaking right now um, if R Ralph hadn't been there at a critical providential no, time. That's you're right. So we had dinner. We had lunch at the Chinese restaurant on a regular basis. And and then, you know, I haven't seen him for a while. And then Dave Solomon, I'm at the Morris Inn on Notre Dame campus. And Dave Solomon comes up to me and says, Ralph would like to see. You. He's not doing well. He's in the nursing home, you know, Holy Cross Village across the way. So don't spend a lot of time there. You know, he's weak. So I go there and Ralph wants to talk. And he's talking about his life as a literary man. And eventually it's like at three hours later, I say, well, Ralph, I got to go, you know, because he really wanted to talk. And it was one of those great moments. And so, you know, he says, you know, how are you doing? And I said, I'm not doing well at all. I mean, this was the right after the Jewish revolutionary spirit comes out. I am toxic. I am plutonium. I mean, if I was never popular, but this is, I mean, it's just really bad and, and we are not doing well financially. And so he said, well, how much money do you need? And I told him that, and he wrote a check because he was a wealthy man and he could do that kind of stuff. And he saved culture wars. And, uh, I wouldn't be here right now if it weren't for Ralph McInerney's generosity. Here's how, I'm trying yeah. to, I, I, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I was going to. Add something else, but you were, you were on a roll. I was only going to say, if that's if that's uh, Dr. McInerney being weak, what would have been like that afternoon strong? It was, I, 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 I loved Ralph McInerney. It was just, it was a pleasure to be with him. My, my, one of my fondest memories is when we went to the Synod in Rome and, you know, we're walking around Rome in the evening. It's one of those benign fall evenings in Rome. I couldn't imagine being with a, a more congenial companion than Ralph McInerney walking around Rome. Mm -hmm. And so at this, at, at this moment, he basically saves me, saves the magazine, saves what I'm doing. And I, you know, this is me. I, it's a category in my mind or what, but I felt that he put the mantle over my shoulders because he was the last guy in the last ditch mm -hmm. at Notre Dame. You know, the man who defended Thomism to the end at Notre Dame. And then he writes me a check and that keeps me going. And now I wrote the book on Logos. One of the manifestations of Logos, and this is a nice tie-in and we can, we can wrap up here, I think, 
is uh, the, the Logos at work in the heart of the Catholic sexual ethic, that love and life belong together, that sex has a purpose, and that purpose is fundamentally toward procreation. And if you uh, subvert or sabotage that end, you're going to have chaos. Um, one of the stories that you've told, uh, last week I asked you about... Um, the black woman who was going to call her mama because she wanted to kill herself because nobody loved her. <clears throat> Share about Maureen, because Maureen is a stand-in for millions of young women who were also part of this social experiment they weren't told about. Um, and uh, I think it's a story of kind of dying and rising in one person's life. Do you remember the the woman who contacted you because she'd seen you on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, like uh, out uh, the email, she contacts <clears throat> me, and she, she said, you know, I read... Uh, I read Libido Dominandi and I read Slaughter of Cities and that's the story of my life. <laughs> that's the story of Maureen's life. So what did she mean by that? Well, she grew up in an Irish neighborhood and then uh, the, the, the blacks were, who were the proxy warriors of the Ford Foundation showed up and they ethnically cleansed the Irish and that was the end of a, a culture where she... You know, if 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 she fell down, the all of the neighbors would come out and to make sure she was okay and take her home to her mother and make sure that her knee got patched up or something like that. Mm -hmm. Or if she was doing something bad, they'd tell her parents. That neighborhood was destroyed, and that was Catholic culture got destroyed with it. And she went to the deracinated suburbs where nobody knew anybody or cared. And then she went to college, and that's so that and that's where libido dominandi kicked in. Uh, and so she ended up uh, having all of these affairs in college because that's what you do in college. And she ended up having four abortions uh, and because she listened to Madonna. And that seems that was what Madonna was telling all these Catholic girls to do when she was gyrating around half naked or completely naked. She would wear a crucifix around her neck just Papa, so that don't these preach. girls got the message. Yeah. And it, and and so so at that point, she becomes a lesbian. Because she's sick of, uh, you know, the, the sexual exploitation. It becomes a lesbian, and that doesn't work out. And now I said, and yes, and yes, and what happened then? Uh, you came back to the faith. Well, no, she became a Muslim. So there's that sad story. But, I mean, you know, <laughs> that's the story of the Catholics of my generation. They were all exposed to that. It's a mm -hmm. miracle anybody's still alive, given the toxic yeah. nature of what we were all exposed to. But that's the story, you know. Can we expect a rise story. Uh, of Thomism today? I don't have a crystal ball, but uh, I, I, I feel that uh, writing Logos Rising has brought the issue back in some sense mm -hmm. or other. That's my hope, because people all over the world are now reading this book, and all over the world, you've got people who now have the philosophical lingua franca that they need to make sense out of things and not be intimidated by these the, the, the Fauci's and Gates of the world who are trying to tyrannize us by calling themselves scientists. Mm -hmm. So that's my hope. Here's how the book ends. The moment... Let's see here. But the course of Logos in human history cannot be thwarted by the designs of the wicked. The moment of its apparent death in any age is in reality the moment of its eventual rebirth. Logos is always rising, no matter how it seems at any particular moment in time. History is an ascending spiral of rationality. God tolerates evil and error to bring about a greater understanding of the good and the true.
With each historical cycle, the distinction between Logos and its opposite becomes more apparent. Because the distinction between Logos and anti-Logos in our day has never been more obvious, its victory has never been more certain. That's from the last page of Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. Its author, Dr. E. Michael Jones, has been my guest in this two-episode series. Dr. Jones, thank you very much. Thank you, Patrick. This is The Patrick Coffin Show. Check out coffination.com and be a saint. What else is there?